0: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line.
1: Survival is the
0: rule of the day.
1: Mm, my jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of we're out. To take country We're out there. At the end talking. of the day, everyone wearing green All is a soldier.
0: communication. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. A uh, place like the Middle East a constant is constantly changing. What
2: we do there is constantly changing. And this,
0: I think, was our own mindfucker. He holed me up with a broken whiskey bottle and
1: machine.
0: For today's bonus episode of Life on the Line, I spoke with Norton Duckmanton, a World War II veteran. I met Norton at the Reserve Forces Day Parade held at Sydney's Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park. This is the conversation we had while we waited for the parade to start. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm at the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park as everyone sets up for the Reserve Forces Day Parade 2017. The main objective of the day is to raise the profile of the Navy, Army and Air Force Reserve forces and to recognise currently serving and former reservists and to thank the families and employers for their support. The theme for last year was to commemorate the battles of the Western Front and the large number of Australians that fought there. The theme for this year is to focus on the Desert Mounted Campaign and the centenary of the charge at Beersheba, the last great cavalry charge. This charge commenced at 4:30 p.m. on Wednesday, 31 October 1917. This is the second time the parade has been held at the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park. If you can hear some pipes in the background, that will be the Manly Warringah Pipe Band. Music for today's parade is by the Manly Warringah Pipe Band and the First Fifteenth Royal New South Wales Good Lancer morning. Band.
1: Thank you very much. Yes, yes, yes. Check one, two. Check one,
0: two. And thanks for joining me on the podcast, Norton.
1: Thank you very much. Yes. So Norton,
0: Norton. When were you born?
1: 1925.
0: You were 14 when World War Two broke out. Do you That's remember a, hearing? Yes. The, do you remember hearing the news? Oh yes,
1: yes. My father and um, uh, we had uh, served in the First World War, and his brother Norton, whose medals I'm wearing, uh, was killed in uh, France in 1917, a hundred years ago.
0: Where did your father serve in the First World War? He,
1: in France. He yep. was very fortunate. He got there when it was nearly over.
0: An infantryman?
1: He was an infantryman, yes. He subsequently uh, served in the, in the Second World War in Australia service.
0: What rank was he then?
1: Uh, he finished up a Lance Corporal.
0: <laughs> it's not all about rank. <laughs>
1: <laughs> in the First World War, he was a private.
0: <laughs> if he'd uh, been able to fight in Vietnam, he might have made corporal.
1: If <laughs> he, you... Yes, he might have had post-traumatic stress too, but he he had a bit of that anyway, in retrospect from his other service.
0: Between your late uncle's service and your father's, is that what inspired you to join up in World War II?
1: Mm. Probably, but to a greater extent I was mad keen to fly.
0: Did that passion for flying exist elsewhere in your family or just you?
1: My son finished up in the Air Force, Peter Duck Mountain. He finished up as a dentist. Didn't go to Vietnam or any of those.
0: What year did you join up?
1: As soon as I turned 18. So
0: 1943?
1: 43. Just before Christmas. My birthday was in the November and my entry into the air, but I probably joined up earlier than in the Air Training Corps in 1942. Uh, it was just being being uh, formed and we didn't even have uniforms or anything, but I got enough information in the Air Training Corps to be able to select it for aircrew training. I was being on a farm, we were fairly remote, I was unable to go to high school. And I was fortunate in the time between 14 and 18 to be living with my with my mother's father, who was a master mariner in sail and steam. And he took me in hand and taught me algebra, which I would need in the Air Training Corps, um, maps and charts, Morse code, And all the things that I would have, that I required to be able to be accepted in the air training corps for air crew training three years later.
0: How was it training to be a pilot? It could be pretty hair-raising back then and a lot of high casualty rate.
1: Uh, Well, I I didn't really ever want to be a pilot. I'm sorry, I misled you earlier. I I finished up a navigator (coughs) and a wireless operator. And this was because I was able to... Well, I I was not a sportsman and never have been. I would have have killed myself if they tried (laughs) to to train me as a pilot. Because later on, I did do some pilot training and uh, I I was clear that I was not suited to be uh, even a civilian pilot. So navigation was my thing. The Morse code was my thing. Morse code. Not many people know about it, but let me see your your name, Alex. Da 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 da. After all those years,
0: I'll remember that if I'm ever <laughs> in a stress situation. So your training finishes up. You're uh, okay and alive because you've decided what your best speciality is. Where are you posted?
1: Well, I had a problem, that I. Found that I got airsick. I would not have completed the course. So I took up smoking and the advice of the people who you know, did extra flying and had some uh, sedative medication, <laughs> and I managed to get off the course. Okay. Continued to smoke for a little while. Then, after I was finished up on both other aircraft, so I'd been on flying on those for about six months. I found I didn't get airsick sick any uh, so I gave up smoking. Fortunately, never took it up again, probably. That's why I'm 91. <laughs> and what's more, when we got onto our squadron uh, and we were up uh, posted uh, away, my cigarettes and my beer was kept in the aircraft and the fitters, they had my cigarettes. And they
0: looked after us very well. (laughs) So, were you ultimately deployed to the Pacific War? Yes,
1: we finished up in Borneo um, at a place called Labuan. We weren't there very long, we had enough time. We did three uh, missions, and then the last one, where it didn't eventuate. And as I say, when I talk to people about the Morse, I don't think I sent many important messages but I did receive one very important message and it was sent something like this, we were based on Labuan, the AIF were attacking Balak Pappan and they were being harassed by a huge gun that the Japanese had brought up from Singapore, a six inch gun, and it was dug into it and no one could get at it. And we had been boasting what wonderful things our rockets were, and they took us up on it because you know, we would say, well, if a salvo of rockets, of eight rockets from a bow fighter, would be equivalent to a six-inch cruiser. And therefore, you know, they the trouble was, of course, they were very difficult to, <laughs> to hit anything because they had a trajectory quite different to cannons. But when the <coughs> rocket fuel burned out, it dropped away very quickly. And you had to fire at it at 600 yards exactly, you're as near as you can, 10 degree dive, and you had to be doing 208 knots, and then you had a chance of hitting something and then when you fired them you were now 600 yards away from them and coming in at 210 knots you had to do a, a very very steep turn and get the hell out of it and um, it was, that was the danger time at that time you either if you left it too late you'd shoot yourself down with your own shrapnel whether, if you hit anything because you'd be too close to it, and we did, in fact, have one person who did get caught up in that. This particular time, we were set off from Labuan.
0: This is your last mission.
1: This is the last mission. Now we set off from Labyrinth. thinking. I'm thinking. Said to my pilot at the briefing. Now, listen, Ron. I, I, this, this is a bit, bit dicey. We're number three. Number number one can go, and he's the CEO. He's got the element of surprise. Uh, the second one, he's got some surprise. Three, they know exactly what we're going to do. We're either going to break right or left. They probably guess that, that we'll probably bake whatever the, the CO did. Yes, he said, oh, I know that. <laughs> They're getting so ready. We're getting, so, so we take off. We're, we're on our way down. We're probably about a quarter of an hour out. And I get a message from base. Do not proceed of orbit and await further instructions.
0: So they order you to go in a holding pattern?
1: And to, well yes, um, and, and so as I say we took off about 10 o'clock, it's about 10.30. About 10 minutes later the next message comes, return to base, hostilities will cease at noon.
0: The war is over. The war is over. What's that in Morse code? Uh, uh, the,
1: well, the war is over, O-V-E-R. How did
0: that feel? That to oh, realise. Gr-
1: well, it was a great relief. Actually, as a matter of fact, we did that, but we did have a, a bit of a mishap. The person who he was number two after the C.O. He flew too too close to the C.O. and he did, in fact, get hit with shrapnel from the C.O.'s. Uh, uh, ordinancen who, uh, who had hit the, he, he, he got two hits on the, on the ship we were attacking and uh, uh, he was just too close to him and then he lost a motor and it was quite a quite a saga actually. He lost a motor and he feathered the wrong one. He feathered when you lose a motor you turn the prop so that it's head on all it angle onto the the direction you're going so it reduces the drag otherwise it will windmill and have a lot of drag (coughs) he's doing very nicely on his port engine until he feathers it and now he's in the jungle and he he managed to come back with the aid of the local people and they brought him back later we took six months later we did a Ferry trip to Japan. The they, they Mustangs that were sailing to Japan under the Beak, uh, as they call British Commonwealth Occupation Forces.
0: So this would be early forty-six. This is, 46? This,
1: is a, this is now about uh, March. March nineteen March forty-six. Um, <coughs> we the, the we were two of us in front of the flotilla, I suppose you could call it where the fighters were being led by us and we were out in front as weather aircraft so half an hour out in front of the other people we nearly killed ourselves twice in the one week on that trip, I was in more danger then or more good luck perhaps as they say the devil looks after his own and I've been very very fortunate in my life and perhaps that does apply however (coughs) At this particular time, we came, there was two of us out in front, and we're separated by about the other aircraft, we'd be about, on oh, the top of that tree
0: over there, I suppose. It's we're pretty back. high.
1: from. Where, where, so we're here.
0: About five storeys.
1: We came into cloud over an island called Palawan, off the post, or off the 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 Philippines, and it was a thought the trade winds. Mm. the air was the winds were coming up, rising and formed over the land and formed a cloud. The idea was that you would deviate, if you were the aircraft abandonman, you would uh, increase your flight, uh, height, or climb five feet of, 500 feet a minute for about five minutes and then you would level out and the lower aircraft would deviate to the starboard and lose height. And then at the end of five minutes you would reverse and come back together. So we go into the cloud, I'm sitting in the back, in the back seat of the bay I look up and of course there's the other aircraft, goes into cloud and disappears. About five minutes later I hear an exclamation of From my pilot, who be so and so red, so and so, and I look up and there's the aircraft, the other one. He'd done the same, and we had flown for five minutes in cloud without.
0: Wow! And you managed to not hit each other. (laughs) Yes.
1: Well, well, we would never be seen again.
0: Yeah.
1: And then when we got to Okalawa, we we. The, the fighters were behind the other group. On the way to, from Okinawa to Japan, the weather, see, it's, it's early spring, and the weather was problematic. And the leg was, it was a point of no return. we if we get a certain part; if we couldn't go any further, we would just have enough fuel to get back. So we set off and it took us a while we had about four attempts before we could. the weather was good enough. We set out and the cloud came in and we told them to go back, they hadn't taken off. This time the weather seemed to be okay down around Okinawa. We get into the Sea of Japan and to beyond the... after a period of time it became apparent that it, it was... Decri- deteriorating and we sort of warned them that it was deteriorating when, but then we got, kept going and it got worse and worse and they'd reached their point of no return and we had to keep going. It gets further and further down and we probably are not much higher than the tree above the, the sea. And suddenly there's a cliff in front of us.
0: Five or six stories and there's a sudden yeah, cliff. And we
1: had to do a steep turn and go around it. And later, and I was flying with, at that time with a very, very experienced pilot. And when I talked to my wartime pilot about it, not so, uh, afterwards, he said, oh, I would have killed us. I would have tried to go over it. Yeah, And we did lose a mosquito and some mustangs. So actually that was much more dangerous than our wartime pilot.
0: I've been to Okinawa a few times in oh, my life good. Um, and it's it, heavily built up and oh rebuilt. Yeah. Oh and yes. you, you can tell how much it was damaged during the war and I know what I'm looking at these days is nothing what it was like then. How was it in the immediate aftermath of the War Oh World well II? of
1: course it was it, it was tremendous number of casualties. There were several airfields there. We, we landed at Naha and uh, on the way up as we were going up the island. There, there were cemeteries everywhere.
0: Naha's no, uh, just a concrete jungle these days. It's I'm just... sure it is. <laughs> yeah, because, yes, yes. Yeah,
1: that's fascinating. Well, and anyway, had such
0: And such heavy bombardment during oh, the Battle of Okinawa. Oh,
1: my God. And, the, and as I say, the, the casualties were mm. horrendous. And the shipping, the kamikazes. Matter of fact, my, my uh, stepbrother was in the Navy. And he uh, was on the destroyer point duty off the aircraft carriers to pick up anybody who niches and he said was asked at one time had he ever considered his mortality when he was being assessed for a ve- the veteran's affairs when we had at 70 we all got care cards and he said mm, yes once oh what was that well he said it was nine o'clock in the morning and I looked up and uh, to the north, and there were ninety kamikazes coming our way, and I wasn't too sure whether I'd finish together I'd see the day out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's fair cause for concern. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Before we um, fully move on from yeah. World War II, are there any other highlight experiences or missions uh, you'd like to recount for me from there? Well,
1: one of them. This one was a, a something that is sort of preying on my mind at the moment. Um, we. We're a hundred miles west of Hiroshima, Hiroshima. and we flew over it and there it was, flat. I said to Charles, my pilot, God, look at this one bomb. He said, yeah, that's right. We landed, and a couple of weeks later, we went back to Okinawa, uh, to, um, to Hiroshima, by train. And I walked down to ground zero and had a look on so and so over the bridge where all the shadows were people's shadows were there from the flash and I thought to myself my god one bomb 100,000 people were killed and you know as a 20 year old I had no compassion whatsoever all I could think of if this hadn't have happened I would not be here because we were being trained for the attack on Kagoshima Bay. We wouldn't have survived the first run. And I thought afterwards that maybe I should go back to Hiroshima now for the good good of my black soul, the way what's happened. And now, of course, the Japanese, we're seeing them quite differently, quite differently.
0: It's hard to judge your wartime soul and disposition from the good graces of 71 years of reflection since then. Yes, yes. I've yeah, I've been to Hiroshima recently as well yes. On the peace park there it's haunting, it's yes. beautiful it's very sad yes. uh, those words don't remotely justify it so I do recommend to everyone listening to go to that peace park, it captures the tragedy of what happened there very vividly, not to say it was or was not necessary but you can't argue
1: with the horror of it. Well, what was on that point? If we had had to invade Japan, I would have had 999,000 people with me being buried there. Yeah. And we would have had to kill 200,000 Japanese, and we we're all set to do it if we, but for that.
0: I think, so, I think your 20-year-old self can uh, not be judged too harshly <laughs> And from there, you, so you finish up World War II, you go into dentistry, but you don't fully leave the military, you join no, the reserve. No, I, I
1: stayed with the reserve. Well, um, I, I was in the uh, reserve as a student teaching Air Training Corps Cadets Navigation and then when I graduated in dentistry I transferred to dentistry and with regard to the reserve of course I'm on the reserve the first time I go over to America I visit uh, um, American Air Force bases uh, the second time uh, I was asked to pay a visit to the naval base on Lake Michigan um, where the uh, training naval uh, People to be ships, engineer, artificers. There were 20,000 people on the base. That's more than we've got on our entire Navy yeah. or Air Force to put together.
0: And how important were the reserves to your post World War II life?
1: Oh, well, it was incredibly fascinating. I was uh, asked, well, while I was on the reserve, myself and the Dean, who, our Dean, who was the Professor Martin, who was at that time the senior dentist, with the uh, uh, for the for in general of the uh, and the reserves, health reserves or, or dental health reserves, we were asked to put together a protocol for the specialists, the protocol what they should do, and uh, at the end of it, I was appointed as the. Uh, Consult, con, s- consultant to the Director General of Air Force Health Services in my specialty, specialty uh, uh, and I'd gone from uh, to a group captain uh, and, and they still call me well, so are you, profet- are
0: you Professor Group Captain Well,
1: Duck Mountain, uh, or well uh, as uh, the uh, sort of a bit of a ticklish spot. <laughs> when you go onto the reserves. They permit me to wear my uniform from time to time, but I felt that probably it would be a bit grotesque to wear it today. <laughs>
0: I'll just call you sir all the same. (laughs) Um, Listeners might have heard the odd clink during our recording and that will be the various clinking of your medals. So you've got your father's medals on one side and yours on your other. Can you talk me through some of the medals? Let's just start with your father's.
1: Oh yes, yes. Well these are the medals for the First World War and they were all the only medals they got. The Australia Service one and the one uh, in France. In the AIS, or overseas one. We, of course, the Americans, of course, have a huge number of them, and we've done much the same. (laughs) Going from uh, this one, this is everybody's medal, these herbs. The Defence Medal. This one is an RFD, that's for service. This one uh, is for, where is it?
0: It's the Service Medal Japan Pacific.
1: Now, these are Australia Service. These two are, are peace medal and victory medal, Australia service. A few of those. This one is the Pacific Star. This one is uh, World, War II star. World War II Star. This one's the AOM. Uh, that was a, uh, awarded just oh, ten years ago now for services to legacy, to uh, dentistry, uh, military, and all those sort of things. A few of my unsuspecting friends put something together none unbeknownst to me, and it turns out I finished up getting it from Maurice Bashir. It would have been about, yeah, about 10 years ago.
0: What a great honour and well-deserved, I might say. How important are the reserve forces, the Army Reserve, Air Force Reserve, Navy Reserve, to Australia's defence today?
1: Today. Let's, let's put it this way. It's unlikely that we will have another World War II it's but we might. But we might. And in the, in the meantime, although we may not be training people in the, in the martial arts, they are ma- providing a tremendous help to the present services, particularly the Air Force. They're the only ones I can really talk about. But uh, they, are, they are serving, many of them, in, on, on bases. Many of the, for the army people, many of the people on deployments are, I'm told, are reserve people. Or, if they're not on deployments, they are making it possible that other people can be spared to go on deployments. And of course, I have to say this, and I really feel, I really feel, um, on this matter, how, how people with, on these deployments. Will all finish up with post-traumatic stress? And many, and one of my dear friends has lost two sons from post one from post-traumatic stress, and That's the terrible. other one was a younger one who idolised him, his brother, and he had uh, he was compromised with cystic fibrosis, and he passed away to so poor. And with this post-traumatic stress is is, it's it's going to be with us and we really don't quite know how to treat it. Uh, We've begun to look at... They're looking at things like this. Why didn't we see more post-traumatic stress in World Mean Bomber Command? One, they were volunteers. Many of the people from Vietnam were not. Two, they did debriefing. After an operation, we'd go to the uh, operations room and we would discuss what we did. They wanted for other reasons, but in discussing what we did in detail were catharsis. And we had friends around us all the time. There there were people badly treated, but uh, I really feel that this is our real problem. It's all the people who were prisoners of the Japanese that they would they would have had big oh, yeah. big times.
0: How do you look back on your military service today? I'm
1: I'm very grateful to have been so lucky <laughs> to a have been able to do it. To been lucky enough to be unscathed. marvelous mildly post-traumatic stress I understand, out of it I understand post stress a little bit better than I would have otherwise as a as a, uh, a healthcare profe- professional uh, treating people uh, in dentistry but particularly the ones from Vietnam um, and to a lesser extent uh, to my own experiences but that I had a small amount. I had lost a friend, I was at a funeral at 19 in the firing party over his coffin um, who had and his pilot, and we went to, who'd crashed an aeroplane unnecessarily, um, and uh, hit me about eight years later, and it took me a long while to understand it, now I do, and I won't go into that because it's, uh, but uh, just to say that Post-traumatic stress is our big problem with the people we send away. And we are attempting to treat them. So far, it's proving to be very difficult.
0: It's a fight we'll be taking for some time to come. I think so. Well...
1: At at least they're aware... well,
0: the parade's starting, Norton, but it's been an honour to meet you and a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for your time today. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. My chat with Norton was over for the moment, but we found each other later and kept talking about post-traumatic stress. More on that later this episode. Once the parade got underway, I got recording. After the banners marched on, I found the bulk of the parade waiting to march on too, led by none other than the Lancer Band. I interviewed a number of the band members in a previous bonus episode of Life on the Line. I said a quick hello to the Lancers before it was time for them to lead the parade. And next to March On, we have the 1st 15th Royal New South Wales Lancer Band.
1: First 15th Royal New South Wales Lancers Red Tomato Band.
0: The lancers are about to march on and ready to strut their stuff. And John Butterworth has switched out his trombone for his tuba. Officer Dave Pragnell is marching on the Lancer Band. And bringing up the rear of the parade is the Manly Warringah Pipe Band.
1: Campbell will now be formally welcomed
0: by the parade up next musician Kirsten Munro Ross will sing we are Australian on behalf of the Lancer band as per my chap the Lancers that's normally the role for Elizabeth Smith but she's on leave at the moment so Kirsten is stepping in we are Australian is a favorite of this parade particularly lieutenant-colonel John Moore
1: And I'd also like to acknowledge the contribution of the Royal New South Wales Lancers Regimental Band for their fine accompaniment of musician Magna Ross. We now see two examples of typical Australian and New Zealand horsemen dressed and equipped as far as today's legislation allows regarding firearms as they were 100 years ago. Looking at the riders they wear their slouch hats brimmed down to protect them from the desert sun and tucked into their serge puggarees are the famous kangaroo feathers as the light horsemen called them cut from the breast of an emu hide This year the parade acknowledges our forces in the desert campaign and that charge at Beersheba, that brilliant charge at sunset from the west by the fourth and twelfth light horse regiments which took out the Turks and gave the horses the water of the wells before they could be poisoned. The last great cavalry charge in history. And when we see the horses on parade in front of us today, we can think how brave the horses were and the riders
0: in that phenomenal charge. Speaking was the New South Wales chairman of the Reserve Forces Day Council, the Honourable Tim Fisher, AC. After the parade and everyone was making their way over to the morning tea stand, I found Norton again. he had started to talk about PTSD earlier with me, but had decided he wanted to get more of his thoughts on the record. So Norton, why are you so interested in post-traumatic stress as a dentist?
1: First of all I came up against it with the World War II prisoners of war of the Japanese when I began treating them because they'd lost their teeth or had their teeth removed before they went on, well, certainly the upper teeth, before they went on uh, overseas. The army said they had to be dentally fit and uh, it's a long story about how we've changed all that, all so much that, but why they had to be treated in the way they were, which was to remove all the decayed teeth and make them dentures, And it sort of came upon me within, within the industry. Went to a legacy ward of mine, who was now a psychiatrist. I realised then that I had a very mild case of it myself. We were doing bombing practice in King of, up in Kingaroo, dropping from low-level jelly petrol, napalm. And the idea was that you had to drop it in front of the target and catch a light and go over them. And we had to come in at a 10-degree drive and drop it at at 100 100 feet out.
0: Napalm?
1: The results were deplorable. People are complaining about this. Their heads, and one of our pilots had been flying dive bombers. And he said, Look, he said, you've just got to steepen the dive and cut out some of your forward speed. So they said, What do you think he should use, Oh, well, he said, At least 30 degrees. 30 degrees? You'll build up so much speed with a mosquito, you'll pull the wings off when you pull out. Oh, no. Well, the next time we went out, he did. And he did and now we've got two funerals, together.
2: And because
1: I'm friends with his navigator, so I'm in the in the party, in the firing party over the grave. Standing over it, we lower the coffins. We're not too sure who's in what, and probably a lot of aeroplane parts that we couldn't pick up, couldn't catch them. And I was so upset and angry that I wouldn't go to funerals advanced eight years of going to a funeral. So I go through the ceremony, we've been in the Catholic Church before, and it was a beautiful ceremony, I thought, oh, that's interesting. So then we go out to the graveside, and they have the ceremony there, and I'm invited to throw some soil on the pot. So I come along, I can nice pick up the trowel, go over to the graveside and tip in, the, the, um, the soil, and when I see the caffin, I burst into tears. Completely collapsed, emotionally. It was terribly embarrassing. Well, many years later, I, as I say, I, was, I met, as I, when he was a medical student, a psychiatrist with the name of John Pickham, and he's practising out at Westminster. So I went to him and said, John, give us a heads up on this, this post-traumatic stress. And so he's telling me, and I thought to myself, my God, that's why I would never go to funerals. He said, oh, yes, of course. And it, it, very mild, you know? I'm, the other one I was being shown over a tank, and they had uh, a Matilda tank, so they show us over them, and take us out for a ride, Them. I'm in the turret with him, he's me, showing me was wireless, of which I'm very interested. And he said, well, what do you think of this? And it reaches over and gets the shell out of the, its, oh, its bracket and slams it into the breach. But I'm not very interested in this. I'm interested in these wireless. And I asked him a question about the wireless, which he answers. And so we went on a bit further. And <coughs> we finish up coming back to the parking area. And he said, well, John will help you out of the, the uh, turret. I'll uh, go through the checker down here and the next thing I hear, I hear, him say, wireless turned off, firing pins to release, BANG! And that uh, I hear the terrible screams. Three people are standing on the back of the tank in front of us and of course we've disemboweled. It was absolutely dreadful, And of course in that one, of course they had big to-do and they court martial and I'm a witness, and but what really worried me was the terrible catastrophe of what had happened, and he was a broken man after.
0: And when did this happen, Norton? Oh,
1: just before the trip, to, <laughs> the trip to Japan. Right. All the two in the same sort of time, and that's the one, you know. Everyone's saying, well, if Bloody Duck Mountain hadn't been in there, he wouldn't have done it. And if had Duck and hadn't distracted him, he would've taken the blasted thing out. So not only do I have the, the you know, the pathos of it, but there's the guilt complex, too. So that's what these poor guys put up in big time. Nothing, I mean, that was quite, really, when you think about it, quite right.
0: And you put up with all that in such a short space of time. You have these hair-raising missions, you have these <laughs> other encounters that, or incidents that make you feel the guilt and then the war ends. It's so much in such a short yes. space of time.
1: Oh yes, yes. yes. So that, that's one that I don't talk about very much.
0: Well, thank you for talking about it with me. After that heavy conversation, should we head over to the refreshment tent and yes. have a cake?
1: Yes, that might be an idea.
0: That was a really special conversation I had with Norton, and I'm honoured he opened up to me the way he did. It was a great occasion, the whole parade. A little while after, I called Lieutenant Colonel John Moore of the Reserve Forces Day Council to chat about the parade. I should note that I have spoken with a Lieutenant Colonel John Moore of the Australian Army Reserves before on this podcast about the history of the Anzac Day Dawn Service, This is a different Lieutenant Colonel John Moore of the Australian Army Reserves, and he is the National Executive Officer and New South Wales Deputy Chairman of the Reserve Forces Day Council. Thanks for speaking with me, John.
2: No problems, Alex.
0: First of all, I just wanted to say, John, that Norton Duckmanton is quite a remarkable fellow, and thanks for introducing me to him the other day.
2: No problems, he was very pleased to talk to you.
0: He's got quite a great life story, doesn't he?
2: Amazing, yeah. He's uh, World War II and rings up every uh, Thursday to make sure the meeting's on, or if he rings up, apologise, he can't make it there. But otherwise, he's there. He's a 100% a tender man. So,
0: John, what is the work that you do with the Reserve Forces Day Council all about?
2: Quick background, uh, I'd served uh, 33 years from a private through to a lieutenant colonel, last 10 years from a service as a half colonel and there was a significant event coming up called the 50th anniversary of the reforming of the citizens military force which had been going through the war but in 1948 they decided to reform it and uh, they came with um, they asked people that had had notable war service Um, one in this state for example New South Wales's Major General Paul Cullen he was a brigadier at the time He'd been awarded the distinguished order twice for his uh, leadership in uh, in the islands, but he'd he'd fought all of the king's enemies, if you like, from uh, uh, from the Germans, the Italians, the Japanese, um, and anyone else, um, probably Vichy French. He was very keen, he was a great supporter. So for the 50th anniversary of the re-raising of the Citizens' Military Force, Um, I decided that we should acknowledge it with a significant event. So we moved quickly on it um, because that was um, 1998. So it was late 1997 when I pushed it it along and we had 12 cities throughout Australia uh, ready to go on the 1st of July 1998. So next year is 20 years. So the purpose of it was to recognise Reserve Service, the Navy Army Air Force, and in Sydney, we said we'll go for a street parade um, and we invited uh, overseas reservists from the United States and they sent one of their planes with a contingent of about 60 people of their uh, their four services. And uh, we set off at about 11.30 from the overseas shipping terminal to March along uh, George Street uh, with about uh, a few thousand serving in former reservists, bands, armoured vehicles, current and past. And it was a magnificent day. So uh, after that, it was decided that we should, not by us, the organisers so much, but by everybody that took part, that this should be an annual event. That really got a lot of TV coverage. Um, uh, John Laws did a TV commercial for us, um, and that set the scene going. So it's been going ever since. Uh, in different cities depended on the enthusiasm of the organisers, how well they do it. And that
0: fantastic initiative has led to the Reserve Forces Day parades that we have today. Yeah, the
2: one that you saw the other day, that was a continuation of it. So the aim is that people like to march and we always keep it to a march of some some style. Um, and we used to march uh, down Macquarie Street or uh, on the domain, but uh, with the trams being introduced to George Street and the road closed. Now Macquarie Street's closed for the re-sending re, um, the buses down that way. So uh, we've picked an ideal place for these few years as it's coming up to the end of World War One. So um, the Anzac Memorial is ideal and uh, we've adapted our parade to suit that sort of space that we have.
0: And commemorate some of the centenary events like the Charge this year.
2: Yeah, so we always pick a theme. Um, to use which enables us to focus the media and that on it so it might have been for example the centenary of the engineers I think it was um, 03 um, 2003, 1903 2003 uh, when we had engineer uh, reservists territorial army people come from um, England New Zealand and America and Canada so um, that's the sort of thing we do and it Therefore, it becomes a major event. Our theme for next year will be the end of the war. We haven't exactly got the name sorted, but it will certainly be the centenary of the end of the war.
0: Well, I can imagine you'll do something very special for that. Having the guys mounted on cavalry in authentic gear for the charge of Beersheba was quite a nice spectacle to have at this year's parade.
2: Yes, it certainly was. So that uh, that got very good media. And uh, with the Chief of Army and the two brigade commanders, the 5th Brigade the 8th Brigade, coming in, um, it, was, it made, really made it very special. RSM of the Army, uh, these people don't come to something like this from Canberra unless there's something uh, very special going to happen.
0: It's quite a significant parade. It's become a landmark event in the Army and Reservist calendar.
2: Yeah, it's in also in this, um, this calendar for the Department of Veteran Affairs New South Wales. The state government helped us very well with some funds towards it. It's become on the state calendar. Of veteran affairs as well
0: turning our attention to the reserves more broadly what historically has been the role of the australian reserves
2: over the years it's sort of changed a little bit in as much that before world war Two, there was no not a very big regular standing army as they call it. uh same with world war one so the reserve would, for the purpose was to uh, expand very quickly and have the leaders there to do it so before World War II, there was about 80,000 in what they called at the time the militia. And that was then very quickly uh, formed to, uh, for the defence of Australia and um, also then the second AIF was formed which allowed it to serve overseas where the militia was only able to serve Australia and um, Australian territory in New Guinea. What happened then, the leaders of the 6th Division, which is the 1st Division mobilised, um, they picked uh, leaders that had had World War One experience in many occasions and they also picked people that had shown the right leadership qualities in the militia. So they had the, the nucleus and then they recruited, of course, people from the street as people joined up the second AF. So it was really a foundation force that could be mobilised quickly.
0: And how has that changed over time as we reach the modern era?
2: Well, right at the moment, the reserve is probably the lowest it's been, um, as in numbers, about 12,000, 13,000. For example, is when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, um, the Prime Minister at the time was Malcolm Fraser, and they said, we must boost our numbers in Australia uh, just in case something should happen. And the Citizens' Military Force was taken to 30,000, Uh, troops in a matter of 6-12 months. So that was the highest point we had because it was a special thing. We got a priority on the equipment that became available uh, or they bought commercial trucks and used those. So it was a very serious action by the federal government and it flowed through to make it happen. So it was a good example of the mobilisation.
0: Yeah, the Chief of Army made a comment recently to the ABC about reservist numbers. Can you tell me more about that?
2: Um, it was a surprise to me that the numbers were as low as they were. I think he said 13,500. Uh, when I was serving, it was about 26,000. So the change is quite significant. And it's to do with the way that people have to serve these days. In my time working for the Bank of New South Wales, um, I was very fortunate that all the top leaders at the time of the Second World War, soldiers, airmen or sailors, so as a result of that, it meant that they were very supportive of uh, people in the reserve and also the leadership training that they gave. And they gave special time for people doing officer training and the commando training and so on. And when I needed extra leave, I would write to say, for example, to do a parachute course, they gave me four weeks special leave. As it happened, I, I didn't get on the course at the time. But uh, for other special courses... Uh, one, for example, was that I, they, uh, I was selected as the reservist to do a regular force course um, called the Joint Services Staff College in Canberra, uh, where I lived for six months, and the overseas study tour was to Indonesia. So they gave me special leave for that. Uh, the top man was our last senior chap that would have been, um, it was Second World War, was Bob, Bob White AO and he passed away recently. But he'd been in the Second World War and he knew the value of reserve service and leadership training that it go. And for those listening,
0: what are some of the main benefits to joining the reserves today?
2: Um, I don't think it's changed. It's been uh, like what I really enjoyed about it is the uh, quite different to working in a bank. It was out uh, doing tactical exercises and so on. There was the opportunity for promotion And each one of these steps meant that you had to be selected, which meant that you probably uh, had the gung-ho, the the keenness to do these things, and also you would then uh, get the chance for a promotion. So for me, it was working up the ladder and uh, over a a long process of being moved in the Bank of New South Wales from a country town where it was transport, then down to Warnall where it was artillery. and there was a two-stripe there, Bombardier up to the Armoured Corps at Albury, which was when I left there as a sergeant in the Armoured Corps, and then to Melbourne, where I went back to my original corps, which was the Service Corps, now the Royal Australian Corps of Transport. So progressively, there was always the opportunity to progress, and by doing that, you had more opportunity to really help in the organisation of that unit, be it a squadron, company, platoon, and uh, ideally... What you came up with with your leadership is that it was a benefit to the unit.
0: So, there's also opportunities there for your own self-betterment and physically with skills and just generally challenging yourself to achieve the next goal, whether it's promotion or
2: a new specialty. Yeah, that's correct. It it certainly was a help. Uh, I felt it was always a help uh, with methods of instruction. I I was selected to go into the Bank's Training Organisation and over the period of time from Adelaide through to Sydney. I'd spent ten years on and off in the bank's training organisation uh, as an instructor and as a leader in that in the field of bank training. So, I think um, I wouldn't have done that or wouldn't have known what to do if I hadn't have been in the army.
0: Well, John, the Reserve Forces Day parade this year was a smashing success, and I can't wait to attend the 2018 one.
2: Just Alex, uh, just uh, before you wrap up, is that um, we did a reconnaissance there uh, yesterday. The parade will be focusing. Uh, two on uh, the Anzac Memorial and we'll be marching up uh, the Central Avenue led by two bands playing Highland Cathedral. Magnificent parade for people to watch and it symbolises the looking at the memorial as we march uh, what that means to Australia and the people that were lost in New South Wales and elsewhere to the ward particularly World War I.
0: Well listeners should look that date up next year and mark it in their calendars. 1st of July. There you go. Thanks for your time today, John. And that's our bonus episode for Life on the Line for this week. It was a pleasure to speak with Norton Duckmanton and John Moore and to be at the Reserve Forces Day Parade. If you like the episode, you can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. We also have Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and you can find us by searching for Life on the Line Podcast. Our website has more information about Thistle Productions, the podcast, and our other projects, including our new book, Barney Tracks, written by best-selling author Michael Veach, based on the research by Alex Lloyd and Angus Horden. Find out more at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.